Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank, and today I'm joined by Oliver Novakovic, who's Technical and Innovation Director at UK House Builder, Barrett Developments, and Andrew Shirley, Editor of our Wealth Report magazine and Head of Rural Research. Hi, Oliver and Andrew. Hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. Nice to be with you again. So in this episode, we'll be taking quite a futuristic angle, looking at what our homes will be looking like in 100 years and also the future of farming. But I thought I'd start in the present tense. Clearly, the present informs the future. And currently, of course, it's the cost of living crisis that's making headlines. So just to start with, I was going to ask each of you just for a quick intro on how that's impacting your sectors and what you think that means for the future. So Andrew, I'll pick on you first, just because the article that I read this morning, which I thought was quite interesting, given it sort of is a bit of a throwback to start of the pandemic, further egg crisis headlines, consumers could be hit with higher egg prices as UK farmers reduce their flock numbers. So just wondered what the sort of mood is from UK farmers at the moment, um, and how that's impacting their plans for land and so on. Yeah, I mean, food is obviously one of the sectors that's being um, hit by the cost surges caused by the war in Ukraine. So grain prices have gone up, but also conversely, the cost of producing that grain has gone up for farmers. So their fuel costs, their fertiliser costs, these are all going up. So a lot of agricultural businesses in the UK, particularly those that rely on a lot of energy and a lot of um, feed, particularly the pork sectors, the egg sectors, the chicken sectors, they are really struggling at the moment. So a huge number of pork producers, a huge number of egg producers are actually saying they are on the verge of going out of business. They cannot make profits at the moment. So if those guys go out of business, that will inevitably lead to shortages of those products and higher prices in the shops. Prices that are already increasing at the moment, as we're all experiencing when we go go down to the supermarket or wherever we do our grocery shopping. More towards the end of the podcast, we'll go into a bit more detail, Andrew, just on how they'll be tackling the future and, and so on. But Oliver, obviously, bill costs are also increasing. So from a sort of house builder perspective, but particularly from your perspective, working on Barrett's zero carbon concept home, just wondered how sort of rising costs are sort of currently impacting your plans. Just bearing in mind, you're obviously looking at sort of very new technology and so on, and you're thinking of rolling this out on a big scale. I suppose, as, as always, there's a positive and a negative or a, a challenge to, to the rising fuel costs. So the, the challenge of rising fuel costs is on our supply chain, our trades, whether they're trying to get to sites, our supply chain, because basically they need energy to produce their products. They need fuel to get those products to site. So those are having uh, substantial increases on cost of materials and trades across the sector and something that we have to regularly manage, uh, as well as availability of products. I mean, that's another thing we, we won't touch on when you, when you specifically talk about... Uh, a cost crisis around energy. On the positive, I suppose, for us, you know, a new house, you know, customers currently, whether they're in a, a refurbished house or in a new house, will be doubling their cost on energy. So obviously they, like they did when fuel went at a very high price and everyone started buying 1.1 engines, what people are now looking for is energy-efficient homes and they're considering energy-efficient products like air source heat pumps and PVs. They're looking at electric cars, which is affecting people saying, well, if I've got an electric car, does it benefit me to have PVs and a battery? So a positive is I think it's broadening people's view uh, of energy efficiency across the sector, which, which is beneficial when you think of the journey to zero carbon that we're all making. 
Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how long it takes to sort of really pick up on that trend. Uh, We've actually been at Night Frank looking at that and seeing if we can notice a kind of detectable pickup. And certainly in terms of um, the number of new applicants and new homes, there does seem to be a pickup, but it's difficult to sort of tie that directly to energy efficiency at this point. But I'm sure in the future that will become much more evident. Just when we last spoke, Oliver, for the interview for the Wealth Report, Obviously, at that point, you had a, a bunch of students living in, in the Zed house itself over the winter, trialing out new tech. So and everything from infrared heating, smart fridges, atomizing showers and so on. So, yeah, curious to know really what you've learned so far about the ideal future home and sort of how Britain can basically get moving on building smarter homes at scale. Quite a big one. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. We, we had the students in there for two weeks, I should say, and we measured the house for two weeks. We've got more people moving in in August because we're also interested in overheating and that aspect of a building as well as, you know, keeping it warm during the winter because obviously the house lasts all year round. Uh, it was a successful two weeks. The, the students really enjoyed the home they they found it very comfortable interesting enough they they hadn't worked out how the heating worked for two days and didn't realize it until the second day in the middle of the night and this is in the middle of winter so it just shows how well insulated the building was that they didn't really kick in to them and you know probably more importantly they didn't they didn't find that the technology was overpowering it just felt like living in a normal house which as you know you know that's what we need we need these houses to in a way not affect people's life and how they approach life in those homes they should just stay in the same manner as they would in any other home I mean, with regards to, you know, the perfection of technologies, or I think you called it the ideal future home, which, which is, I suppose, maybe where we're working to. <laughs> got no pressure there. I mean, you've got to aim high there, right? Yeah. Well, the reality is the ideal home will be different for everybody and the solutions mm. will be slightly different for, for different house builders. For us, what was important is we applied sort of 50 different technologies. You don't need all 50 of them. I always say it's like an ingredient. We've, we've trialled 50 and we'll need different amounts to get the different levels of regulation and energy performance. So the first step, we might need six or seven, and we're just picking the best six or seven. Are any of these th- things you're able to share at the moment in terms of, I mean, I, I know you're obviously probably at quite a kind of early stage on it, but uh, anything you can share in terms of what you thought was particularly good, whether it was the showers, the fridges, etc. So I think, I suppose there's numerous good. So one good thing was with the air source heat pump, a lot of people have this concern that they're very noisy, um, difficult to install and actually so far I think people have been surprised because a lot of work's been done on air source heat pumps they're very quiet I mean the installation of the air source heat pump wasn't complicated really it was more the cylinder so there, there's some lessons learned and you know the PVs the batteries everything went well you know of course you know we, we put extra effort in this so it was a lot about rollout uh, big learn so it was interesting to see the infrared uh, it was very interesting for me to see the skirting board which we used as a radiator that was a good learn um, because it means we can use space and heating in a different way but I suppose yeah no, nothing really surprising because we've been looking at all of these individually we just put it in one house but um, so I suppose the surprise was that they all went together and they all worked um, probably the lesson is that we probably need some sort of a remote control for the home because currently the individual technologies have their own software and their own approaches. And, and if I'm selling one of my houses yeah. to maybe people that aren't so tech savvy, I can't yeah. rely that they're going to know how to manage yeah, each no, piece of software. 
And in terms of, you know, how quickly this can be rolled out, um, in our interview for the Wealth Report, you mentioned that most of this tech should be available in homes by 2025. About 20% of the tech you're looking at is further out than that. Is that still the case at the moment? Are there, you know, and in terms of sort of when you can actually roll this, all of this out on a bigger scale? So, yeah, I don't think it changes. I think some some of the tech, so the PVs and, and um, wastewater heat recovery, some of the tech is going to be here, you know, or we're looking to use it with the next step change in the regulations, which kicks in in the 15th of June of this year. The other tech's available, but we do need to do some careful consideration of rollout and scale up uh, more really around the skills and processes needed. I mean, we build over 18,000 homes, so we have to think very carefully about how we scale this stuff up. But it's available and, and we're already trialling a lot of it to try and to learn that sort of information. And then some of it, you know, it's, um, it's, it's sort of it could be ready very soon. Some of the shower systems that we've looked at from the leisure centre, sort of leisure industry, those are being pushed through, and that's probably making up the 20% infrared specifically for residential. A lot of it was about the time frame was more that a lot of the technology was from another sector. So to make it for house building, they need to do some developments of that product. So. And Andrew, how does all this resonate with you? Because I know, obviously, technology is at the forefront of farming. You know, clearly, that is the future. You've got AI on farms already and that kind of thing. I mean, in terms of, obviously, you mentioned at the beginning, farmers are under a lot of cost pressure. So how are they managing the cost pressure and also this sort of pressure to innovate and introduce more modern methods into their practices? Well, that's that's a really interesting Question, Anna. And actually, although we are seeing lots of new technology being adopted, um, whether that's precision um, driving of tractors or indoor farming, vertical farming, actually one of the key ways that farming is going to cope with these cost pressures is actually to look back to the past um, and look back at methods of sustainable farming that were being practiced, um, you know, at the time of the agrarian revolution. So actually getting animals involved in your system. So rather than having to rely on artificial fertilizers, you're actually fertilizing the ground naturally, not being so intensive, not growing the same crop on the same field for four or five years in a row, but actually letting those fields breathe, planting what we call cover crops, things like clover, that kind of thing that put nutrients back into the um, soil naturally because the soil is the underlying asset for any agricultural business and you've really got to look after that soil and we've spent too long not looking after our soils. So now actually we're learning lessons from the past that you can look after your soils and still keep good yields and actually still keep sort of similar levels of, if not higher levels of um, profitability. So while there is lots of exciting stuff in terms of tech going on, actually the fundamental thing is actually going back to how we used to farm hundreds of years ago. So it's an interesting um, contrast. Yeah, no, that is that is a good point. I guess, yeah, it sort of touches as well on um, sort of what we spoke about earlier, as Oliver was saying, you know, this pressure to, to meet net zero carbon targets and so on. I mean, as part of that, though, do you think that emerging startups growing produce in, in indoor environments, will that be a big part of the future of farming? Will farming be indoors in the future? How much of a sort of share of the market do you think that will be realistically? I mean, it depends. It depends what sort of sectors you're looking at. Obviously, if you're wanting to grow wheat for flour that goes into pasta and bread and all of those sorts of things, you need millions and millions of tonnes of that. So that's something that's 
going to be really hard to grow indoors. You're still going to have to have fields um, for that. But for sort of higher value things like salad crops and fruit, it kind of makes sense to grow those near where your consumers are. So you can sort of cut down on the cost of um, you know, fuel costs, having to drive these things all over the place. So I think that's where we're going to see a lot more innovation in terms of indoor farming. We're already seeing it in the Wealth Report. For example, we talked to someone who was doing it in um, Singapore, so to say, of having to fly in salads. You can now grow them in inside in Singapore. And it also helps in terms of climate because, you know, there was, there's crops that you can't really grow all through the year outside in the UK, like um, tomatoes and strawberries. But bringing them indoors, you can grow them all year round so consumers have access to what they want to eat all of the um, time and previously growing things in greenhouses was quite um, energy inefficient because you had to heat the um, greenhouses using fossil fuels and um, expensive lighting but now the advent of led lighting and some of these renewable heat technologies whether it's solar or ground source you know it's actually much more economical to grow things indoors in in the uk so it's hard to coming back to your original question to put a percentage on what will be grown indoors but i think a it will be a very high percentage of sort of higher value crops. Just to finish, Oliver, I was just going to pick your brains on um, when we, we spoke previously, you mentioned you're obviously looking at, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're looking at some sort of quite interesting electricity circuit where you're looking at linking up the home and the car and making the whole process more efficient. Um, but wondered if you might be able to spell that out for our listeners just in terms of where you're at with that having tested the house sure i mean and, it, and in a way it's a nice circular link back to your cost crisis so the key is it, it you know energy is is very expensive right now and that that's impacting on on customers so the benefit with obviously with the pv is you create your own energy but you have to pay for that but the other thing with the pv is that I'm sorry, just for people to be aware, you're talking about photovoltaics? Yes. Solar panels create energy out of the sun. Obviously, that energy is direct energy, so it goes straight in either to the home or goes back to the grid. But actually, you know, as a customer, what we're looking to do is to be able to store that electricity because if you store that electricity when it's really cheap to use electricity from the grid and use the electricity within the battery when it's really expensive from the grid you help the customer save quite a lot of money. You know, you're helping them manage the when. It's sort of a, yeah. it's sort of a, a fancy economy seven for people of my generation. So it sort of uses electricity when it's most cost effective, whether it's stored or from the grid. Now, the problem with batteries is they only really take a certain amount of you know, energy into about five kilowatts, which is good and, and helps, but really you need more um, the more you get storage-wise, the better you can manage that uh, energy. So a car has anywhere between sort of 50 and an 80 kilowatt batteries and some even bigger. So you can imagine instead of a 5 kilowatt battery, you've now got, let's say, a 60 kilowatt battery. So you've got 12 times the storage. And on our house, we've been able to use a technology called vehicle-to-grid. So we were allowed to, we were able to store the energy in the vehicle and put it back into the grid. So you see what I mean? We could mm-hmm. manage that energy better. Yeah. On our next project, which is in the Energy House 2, which is the biggest environmental chamber, I think, in the world, if not definitely Europe, where we're building a house inside. Whereabouts is that? Salford University again. Yeah. That is using what's called a vehicle-to-home. So we'll be actually able to use the battery to run the home from the vehicle. You won't use all 60 kilowatts because obviously you need some electricity in the car to be able to drive. So, I mean, it's a really exciting space. 
And as you mentioned, so topical and important at the moment. Well, listen, thank you both so much again. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anna. Nice to meet you, Oliver. See you later, Andrew. See you, Anna. For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note, which goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. You can see our show notes for more details on that. And please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's bonus wealth report edition of Intelligence Talks. <laughs>